Well, happy Father's Day to the fathers that are here. I like to say a special happy Father's Day to my father who's here. It's his 61st Father's Day. I know looking at him, you would say, how can that man be old enough for that? But then you look at me and say, yeah, I see it. Um, so good to have him here. Um, so here's the question for all the fathers out there and everybody else. How do you know the Lord's will in your life? How do you follow Jesus faithfully through the journey of life? My day job during the school year is to teach 18 to 22-year-olds over at Cedarville, and they are full of those kinds of questions, and rightly, they should be. It's a key time in life, asking questions about what major should I be? You realize now the average student in college changes their major 537 times. That's the lie, but they did do it a lot. Um, what internship opportunity should I take? Should I go to graduate school? Which one? And then there's also the most important question asked by college students. Is he the one? Hmm. Big questions. You know, pastors get the same kind of questions. Pastor... I want to talk. I'm trying to find God's will for my life. People use different tests for God's will. Some use what I call the peace tests. Well, I'm praying about this, and I'm just not getting a sense of peace about it. Others use what I call the sign test. Pastor, I was driving down the highway. There was a billboard in this deep, rich, blue background. My girlfriend has deep, rich, blue eyes. It's a sign. It could be. I don't know. Then you have the third kind of test. I call this the spiritual test. Pastor, I just opened up my Bible and let my finger rest. One day I did that, and it said he was longing to be filled with the food of the pigs. So I gave God a second chance, and I, I turned it, and I, and, I, and I put my finger on the page, and it was Jesus talking, and he said, go and do likewise. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I can't be. So I gave God one more chance, and I turned, I pushed my finger, and Jesus said, and what you do, do it quickly. <laughs> that is an old preacher joke. But we laugh, but some of us look for God's will like that in our life. <laughs> how do you find God's will? And how do you follow God's will in the journey of life? I think the passage that we have in the book of Acts today can help us with that. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verse 1. We are going to get a little travelogue today. Luke is going to describe for us a journey that Paul takes. And in fact, in order to set the stage, I'd like to start with the last paragraph from last week's passage back in Luke 20 at verse 36. Okay? And we're going to look how Paul is going to travel in 17 short verses from Miletus all the way to Jerusalem. 
Okay, so let's start in 20, verse 36. And when he, Paul, had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. Remember from last week, those were the elders from Ephesus. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul, and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship, and when we had parted, now Luke is including himself, from them, and we set sail on the ship, we came by the straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, and we landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, our disciples in Acts is simply a word for other Christians. We set out, to, sought out to find the disciples, and we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. And we greeted there the brothers and sisters. And we stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed and we came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Philip the evangelist, don't get him confused with Philip the apostle. Philip the evangelist was the guy who was in the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch back in Acts chapter 8. And he had settled in Caesarea. And we stayed with him for seven days. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I can't help but think of my friend Jesse over here with his three daughters who were, well, that's not, okay. Four daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, Agabus is a strange dude, okay? Agabus showed up in Acts chapter 11 in Jerusalem, and he foretold, he prophesied about a coming famine, which happened. I, I call Agabus the Eeyore of the book of Acts. He's always got the sad news. And so now he shows up again in Caesarea at the house of Philip, and you can hear them saying, oh no, what's he going to say this time? And it's not good news. Agabus came down and coming to us, he literally took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And Luke says, when we heard this, we and the people there naturally urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm not ready. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the Lord, will the Lord be done. 
And after these days, we got ready. And then we went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea, they went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and to this travelogue that Luke presents us this morning. I just want to make three comments about the travelogue and, and, and what's happening here. First comment is all the focus on fellowship by Luke. Right? He picks and chooses what he puts in these passages, what he includes and what he excludes. He put a lot of places and he put a lot of people in this travelogue. And there are a lot of diverse people, different ethnicities, Jew and Gentile, different genders, men and women, different ages, whole families, including kids. Paul is all of a sudden swimming in people. Comment number two, don't miss the central tension point that's throughout the journey. The debate that's taking place, should Paul go to Jerusalem or not? Paul's on a mission, but everyone else seems to be saying, don't go, Paul, don't go. And the third comment's more of a, a, a 30,000 feet comment about the passage in the whole book of Acts. Because what you have in Acts 21, 1 to 17, is what we call a pivot point in the book of Acts. We're going to see, starting next week in Jerusalem, the whole story turns. Luke, Luke's a master story writer, right? And you can, this has been building for a while. This has been building. Paul is going to change from being a missionary, taking trips around the Mediterranean, basically in control of his own life, going where he wants to go, facing persecution, facing prison, but still basically in charge. And he's going to go over to Jerusalem and he's going to start to be imprisoned and passed around the different authorities. And he's not going to have any more control of his life. It's a pivot point. It's a key time in the book of Acts, and it's a key time in the life of Paul. So, how was Paul able, in the midst of all this, to stay focused and determined to follow God's will, even when others were disagreeing with him, and also when he knew it was leading him to suffer? Imprisonment and potential death. I think this little travelogue tucked away in Acts 21 can help us better understand how to know God's will and how to follow God's will in our lives. And I'd like to offer four observations for you in that regard. Um, now, the first one I have to admit is more of a general observation overall about following God's will. Okay? And then we'll have three particular observations from our passage. Okay, so I'm going to start off with, with, with a general observation, and that is that knowing and following God's will begins with a step-by-step -step obedience. Knowing God's will does not usually begin with visions and spiritual intuitions. Paul had a deep and clear understanding of what it meant to follow God's will. And we see that. You know, in some ways it'd be easier if we had some extraordinary means telling us what to do how to obey God, what an outside source to make our decisions for us. And by the way, that does happen in the Bible. It's happened in the book of Acts. Paul had a dream where an angel said, don't go to Asia. And so he didn't go. 
You see that in the book of Acts where you have visions. It happens. And, and, and there are preachers, churches, even denominations that talk a lot about visions and dreams and prophecies today. And, and that's a question we have to ask anytime we enter this kind of of narrative is, is this the way God usually works in our lives in 2023 with dreams and visions? And here's my answer. Maybe, but not usually. I also work at the Waffle House on my day job. No, that's sorry. maybe, but I, I think that's the fairest answer. Maybe, but not usually. I mean, we've talked all along studying the book of Acts, that it's a unique book for us, you know, because we always want to study a passage. What does it mean when it was written? And then ask, what does it mean for us? That's how we study the Bible. And when we look at the book of Acts, we have to be conscious that it's a unique book. And there's three ways we have to think about that. First, we have to know there's a tension when you study a book like Acts between descriptive passages and prescriptive passages. Anytime you study a story in the Bible, that's true. Sometimes it's just describing what happened. Other times it's not only describing, but it's prescribing how we should live. That's always a tension for Bible interpreters. Okay? Just there. A second thing is that the book of Acts itself, it's a foundational text in a time of transition. The book of Acts is a foundational text in a time of transition. Jason has talked about this um, almost every week, how the book of Acts takes us from the Gospels, where Jesus was having his three years of ministry, getting ready, as we know now, to leave. Right? And he left, Acts chapter 1, after spending 40 days after the resurrection, his apostles ready to take on the charge. Now, he didn't leave them alone. Acts chapter 2, he sent the Spirit, right? But he left them with this charge. You're to take this gospel into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They are laying the foundation of what we have today, the church. It's a foundational text, and they had apostles running all over the place. And it was also a time of transition. At that point in time, they did not have the full text of Scripture. They didn't have the epistles yet. They didn't have the book of Revelation yet. We have the full text of Scripture now. We have something they didn't have. They, have, they had more direct communication from the Lord because they didn't have the Bible that we have. So you just have to keep that in mind when you're studying the book of Acts. So, does the Lord lead us like he led Paul, in this case, with visions and spiritual intuitions? Answer, maybe, but not usually. I think the better place to start when you're talking about the will of the Lord in your life is this. The will of God begins with a step-by-step -step obedience of God's revealed will in Scripture. That's where it starts. We want to jump to the other things first. No, it starts here. You see, knowing God's will is actually a skill set. 
It's wisdom, skill in living. Knowing God's will is learning to ask the right questions at the right time. Knowing God's will, it's an issue of fluency. Fluency. Now, I'm using that word on purpose, and it comes from learning a language. So if you have heard the language, let's say French, and you hear it and think, isn't that romantic? My girlfriend would be so impressed. And so you decide that you want to become fluent in French. So you decide, I'm going to spend five minutes a day listening to a podcast where they talk French, and I'm going to learn. Will you do it? No. If you want to become fluent in another language, it takes hard work. It takes memorizing a vocabulary. It takes studying the grammar. It takes practice, practice, practice in real conversations. And the best thing you can do to become fluent is to spend time in the French culture. It's called cultural immersion, where everybody around you is speaking French. There's a fluency to knowing the Lord's will. I'd like to point out another text, and it's going to be on the screen for you. Hebrews chapter 5. Okay, Hebrews chapter 5. The author says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. In other words, his, he, he's talking some doctrinal stuff here, and, and his readers don't understand it. They're dull of hearing. Um, and for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the words of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. These people he is writing should know God's word and God's will. They should be adults about it. They should be teaching others about it, but yet they're still babies and they don't understand and the key phrase for me is the last one, where I think it defines what maturity is. For those who, the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How, how do you get fluent in the things of God? Practice. You don't get trained and fluent in the will of God by listening to a podcast for five minutes a day. It takes work. It takes knowing the definitions. It takes understanding the grammar. It takes practice after practice after practice of daily decision-making in the will of the Lord. And I think, most importantly, it takes the ability to be culturally immersed. That's what you're doing today. To be around other people who were talking in the language of God, who were thinking the thoughts of God, who were feeling the feelings of God, the passions and the loves. And we talk about that, and that's how we pick it up. Wisdom and, know, and following God's will in our lives is about fluency, and it's about discernment. And we learn it through habits, not formulas through practices. I, I'm afraid that sometimes, especially when I was in my college years, 
that the will of God was talked of like a dot that you have to find. Something that God wants for your life, and, and you just got it's your job to find it. We become like those cats. We're, we're looking for that dite, and we, and we just go over. We just, it's paralyzing. How do you find God's will? And it breeds a lot of unnecessary anxiety, and I think guilt in this situation. Um, can, I'm just, let me just give you an example that I have to use a lot because it gets asked a lot in my neck of the woods. Who should I marry? Now, for most of you in this room, you don't have to worry about that, but there are some who are still considering it, and I think it illustrates what I'm trying to talk about. It's one of the most important decisions we make in life, and so we want to know what God's will is. And so you hear someone say, is he the one? Can I suggest to you that might be the worst question to ask? Because then it makes it a guessing game. Is that the dot? Is he the one? Is he the one? Is he the one? Is he the one? Oh, you've met people like that. Um, there are better questions that we need to ask. There are wisdom questions we need to ask. Biblically sourced wisdom questions that we need to ask. For example, is he a good person? That's a good question to ask. Is he a person of Christian virtue who loves Jesus and loves people? If you can't answer yes to that, you've answered your question. He's not the one. Is, is, is this person good for me? Does he resonate with me? Does he share my passions and my delights and my joys? Not all good people share those. Does he bring out in me who has God has designed me to be? Am I good for the person? Will I help him flourish or her flourish? Can I provide and compliment them on their journey for the Lord? And last, an important question, as we know on this day, can we be good parents together? Can you see how wisdom questions take, off the, take the pressure off finding the right person, finding the right dot? Because what happens if you marry the wrong person. Let me give you, okay, I know this is college stuff, but you, you, it's, you still like it. Uh, let me give you two words to look for or to listen for if you want to know if you've married the right person, okay? Then you might want to take this down. These are, these are big. And, uh, you know, uh, I got them from the Greek, so it's going to be, you may not see them. Here are the words to listen for, okay? They're real short. I Listen for those words. If you find yourself in a building dressed up with people behind you all dressed up, with person in front of you who's all dressed up, and your friends all dressed up to either side, and that person beside you says, I do, and you hear yourself say, I do, congratulations, that's the right person to marry. That's it, okay? That's when you know, that's who God had for me. You listen for I do. Don't make it more complicated than that. Here's what one person said. Once you married, you know God's will about that. You love the one you promised to love in your wedding vow. Keeping that promise, not finding Mr. Right, is what makes a good marriage. So you start to see what following God's will is like. 
Don't look for dots. I, I love Rick Utenis's illustration. I don't know if you remember this. Back in the fall, uh, Rick Utenis, who was our Builders for Christ foreman from Connecticut, a contractor, a builder, not necessarily a preacher, but he preached that day. And he shared in our old building how he had learned to look at God's will in his life. And he compared it. God's will is not a lighthouse. It's a miner's cap. You remember that? God's we say, we kind of want to know what's going to happen the next 40 years of our life. So we're looking for this lighthouse revelation for God's will. But I think Wick said, and I believe him, Scripture says it's a miner's cap where we walk in pitch blackness of the mind and we see only 10 feet in front of us and our job is to obey what we see. That's how you find God's will. That's how you seek it. So when you seek God's will, obey what he's showing you today. Encourage your friends. Say no to temptation. Spend undistricted time with the Lord. Discipline yourself to stick with your work don't stress, I tell my college students, about 40 years from now. In fact, don't stress about next year or next month. It's wasted energy. And it's unnecessary stress. We practice our faithful muscles by obeying today, not about worrying about tomorrow. I'll say it one more time. We practice our faithful muscles by obeying today, not about worrying for tomorrow. And I tell them, when you look back at 60 or 70 or 80, you'll be amazed at what God has done. What things you never thought possible, things you never dreamed, but he did it because every day you obeyed what he showed you. Okay, that's the biggest point. Okay, we'll go faster. But that's, I, anytime I talk about the Lord's will, you've got to start there. Okay, you've got to start there. Step by step. Point number two. Now we're going to get to our passage. Knowing and following God's will is shaped by life circumstances. Knowing and following God's will is shaped, God's will is shaped by life circumstances. Paul was not afraid of hard circumstances because he understood that suffering is often used by God to forge our faith and to accomplish God's purposes in the world. And that is a biblical lesson. Interesting, all the way back in Acts chapter 9, we learn that Paul has twin features of his ministry, twin points. The Lord is talking in Acts chapter 9 to Ananias. Ananias is supposed to train Paul, then Saul. And here's what the Lord says to Ananias. The Lord, go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine, first to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. His first task was to proclaim. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. His twin task is to suffer. All along life's journey for Paul in his ministry, he said twin tasks to proclaim and to suffer. And it's still happening in Acts chapter 21, and it's going to happen all the way through. Sometimes that persecution would be used by God to move Paul to another city. Other times, Paul would stay and face the persecution and still share the gospel. Either way, in Paul's ministry of proclaiming, persecution and opposition did not thwart his proclamation. 
he continued to spread the word. As Jason said last week, sometimes the Holy Spirit may lead you down a long road, but he will never lead you down the wrong road. And Paul's an example of that. So keep circumstances in perspective. They are circumstances. Point three, knowing and following God's will is not just being shaped by life circumstances. Knowing and following God's will is being strengthened in the context of spiritual friendship. It's being strengthened in the context of spiritual friendship. Paul understood he had a band of brothers and sisters that loved and followed the same Lord. Oh, they disagreed at times, but they would prayerfully and humbly all work together towards the same goal. Remember Luke's portrait in those 17 verses. All the places, all the people. There's a reason for that. Paul was not doing life by himself. He was surrounded by brothers and sisters. He was surrounded by like-minded people. He had spiritual friendships. Two comments about spiritual friendship. First, you've got to notice the humility that's involved. I, I love the back and forth in this passage. People saying, don't go. Paul saying, I'm going, don't go, I'm going. And I like it because it's an illustration that spiritual friends have disagreements agreeably. Right? They can agree to disagree and still love each other because they have the same Lord. In this situation, down in verse 14, or in verse, yeah, in verse 14, Luke says they eventually back down and they ceased arguing, so let the Lord, you know, will the Lord be done? But it's next week in Jerusalem, we're going to see a passage where Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, are going to have some disagreements and Paul's going to back down. Spiritual friendship will include disagreement, but it will include agreeable disagreement. You know, the friends of Paul could have said, hey, Paul, the spirits told us what's going to happen. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be disobeying. If you continue this wrong-headed trip to Jerusalem, that's it. We can't fellowship with you anymore. You're dead. But Paul, on the other hand, didn't say this. Look, hey, the spirit told me I have to go. And so why are we even having this discussion? How many of you have seen Jesus on the road to Damascus? I'm waiting. I mean, he had a trump card every time. He had a trump card. But Paul is patient. Paul listens. He's humble enough to give them the courtesy of listening. Spiritual friendship, there's a certain humility. You don't take yourself that seriously. You can have good old honest discussion and disagreement based in spiritual friendship. Not something you're going to find, I think, on Twitter these days. And what's really amazing to me, you know, and, and from Caesarea, um, when they said, you know, they, they didn't want to go, but he's going. When Paul takes off, disciples from Caesarea went with him. They stayed with him. They didn't get mad that he disagreed with them. They were deep 
friends. And why were they deep friends? Not just because they were humble, because they shared a common bond. They shared a common bond. Any view of Spirit's guidance in our lives that's so mechanistic that it leaves out the process of friendship, of iron sharpening iron, it's going to be insufficient. You know, one of the amazing passages or scenes to me, last week in Miletus, you know, the, 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 the elders at Ephesus and Paul and his compatriots, they all knelt and prayed when he was leaving. They knew it was the last time they were going to see him. And it makes sense because Paul had been in Ephesus for three years. So they had deep connections. But then when he goes to Tyre, they have the same scene. That when Paul's getting ready to leave, they kneel on the beach and prayer. But Paul's only been there for seven days. How, how could they have that same relationship that they had for three years? Answer, they had a common bond. They loved the same thing. They loved the same person. If you have a deep spiritual friendship, it's not because you love each other. It's because you love the same thing together. And that's what draws you. Fact, just a little tip. If someone asks you, if this is the person they're to marry, don't ask them, well, does he love you? Ask him this. Does he love the same thing that you love? That's the question that will keep them together. You find God's will. You follow God's will. Spiritual friendship. And lastly, how do you know and follow God's will? It starts with life's most important question. I've talked a good bit about asking the right questions and wisdom, but there's even something more basic and more foundational, and that's life's most important question. Paul knew his why. My favorite verse, if you're supposed to have favorite verses, in the passage is verse 13. Paul, when they're pleading with him not to go. Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I have this vision of an old Jewish grandmother in my head, right? What are you doing to me? And, and, and the word for breaking my heart is literally the word they would use for pounding clothes to get them clean. So it's like he's saying, why are you pounding away at my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What does Paul do when people are challenging his knowledge of God's will? He reaches back for the rationale that's guided his ministry all along the way, the name of Christ. The one whom he serves, whose name he preaches and heals and baptizes. The one whose name he's willing to suffer and even die for. Paul reaffirms his resolve. He's ready. And, and what I think is so fascinating, this is really a foreshadowing of other things that Paul would later write. You see, remember, 
this little pivot point. Paul's stopping his missionary journeys, and he's on the way to Jerusalem, where eventually he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be passed around to different courts and different rulers. But finally, he's going to end up in Rome. And while he's imprisoned in Rome, Paul will write some letters to his friends, to his different churches. And, and one of those letters that he writes in Rome is, was to his friends back in Philippi. And, and he writes to his friends in Philippi um, about what's happening in the prison. And, and it's pretty amazing because the word of the Lord is being spread. And it's being spread to even the guards. And Paul is so overjoyed. And he says in chapter 1, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers, and the help of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, deliverance, does that mean he's getting out of prison? No, keep reading. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And here's the most basic question. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, when it comes down to it, finding God's will is not a formula, and it's definitely not a technique. Finding God's will starts with the type of questions that we ask. And the words of Paul take us now to life's most important question. What's interesting to me as a teacher is that the most important question of life is not an essay. Most important question of life, it's a fill in the blank. For me to live is... That's it. That's the most important question. There are many, many answers in our society to that question. For me to live is money. But you will never have a bank account rich enough to satisfy you. For me to live is pleasure. You will never have pleasurable experiences gratifying enough to satisfy you. Or for me to live is popularity. You will never have enough friends to satisfy you. For me to live is stuff. You'll never accumulate enough possessions to satisfy you. For me, to live is leisure. You'll have, never have enough rest to satisfy you. For me, to live is success. You will never achieve enough to satisfy you. Can I give you a, you know, a little bit of um, a rubric? Now, you may not know this. If you haven't gone to college recently, the big cool thing to use when you're a teacher is grading rubrics. What tells you what to look for, for A work and B work and C work, and, and you pass that out. And so the student knows what they're supposed to do and how to get an A and how to get a B. Okay. I don't, Paul was using grading rubrics. Unbelievably. 
And he uses one in this little phrase. And here's what it is. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. Whatever you use to fill in that blank, does it have enough weight to finish the equation? Whatever you use to fill in that blank, is it weighty enough to answer the rest of Paul's statement? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Does your answer supply that? Paul's does. Paul's does. William Borden uh, grew up in Chicago around the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s. He went to Yale for college, and he was a very devout Christian, William Borden. And and so when he got to Yale his freshman year, he started a small prayer group before breakfast. And by the end of his senior year, a thousand of Yale's 1,300 students participated in his prayer breakfasts. And he was also working outside the campus with ministry. He began to hope rescue mission in New Haven to reach the homeless. But most of all, William Borden sensed a call to the mission field, specifically northern China, to a Muslim group. And they were considered very dangerous. William Borden was a very, very, very rich kid because his parents were very, very rich. And when he announced to his family and friends that he was going to go to the mission field, they couldn't understand it. But he stayed resolute to his call, much like Paul. And after graduation from seminary, he gave away his inheritance to support missions. And he moved to Cairo, Egypt, so he could learn Arabic, so he could go to minister to this group in China. But within a few weeks of landing in Cairo, He contracted spiral meningitis, and he died. He never made it to China. One of the newspapers at that time said a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself he gave away in a way of joy, so joyous and natural, it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. As they were gathering his things in his room in Cairo, they had his Bible, and they looked inside. And in the front of his Bible, Borden had three simple two-word challenges. No reserve, no retreats, no regrets. Regrets, (laughs) really. I mean, can't, don't you imagine if, if you're on your deathbed? And you're wanting to go to China and you've done all this saying, God, what are you doing? I've obeyed you all along the way. I've given away my money. I've sacrificed earthly fortunes for ministry to a backwater tribe. What are you doing? Die before I even get there? I don't think he thought that. Because he didn't practice and regrets. Now we know because of his tragic death in the early 1900s, Thousands in America were inspired to go to missions. But William Borden didn't know that on his deathbed. He didn't know what God was going to do with his untimely death. But more importantly, William Borden didn't need to know 
Because like Paul, William Borden had a simple answer to his life. And he knew the answer to life's most basic question. So for me to live as Christ, and if I die, it's gain. How are you doing, fill in your blank this morning? Is it weighty enough? Will it last past death? Is it even possible to make death a gain? Paul in Colossians tells us exactly why you could see it's a gain. In Colossians chapter 1, he writes about Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And when you follow him, you will be following the will of God. Lord, um, life is confusing to us because we don't know everything there is to know about life. But you have made something very evident in your word, and that is we can know you who knows everything there is to know about life. And we can be confident that living for your son, as Paul said, can actually make the process of death something that's gained. Oh, Lord, help us all to double-check our answers to life's most basic question. It's in your son's name. Amen.